0: Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David H, Y Kellerman, Sade 13, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Enoch, Gary, Max, Ishtafer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now, on to the show. Hey there, Parallaxius listeners. On this edition of the show, back in October, I recorded a conversation with historian of religion, Professor Daniel Boyarin, author of the recent book, the No-State Solution, a Jewish Manifesto. Professor Boyerin is interested in the question of Jewish peoplehood or nationhood, contra both Zionist nationalism and cosmopolitanism as it's specifically understood or talked about within Western capitalist societies. Essentially, he's looking for a form of Jewish peoplehood that is not poisoned by a state-focused nationalism, and in order to do that, he looks towards the Jewish diaspora. This conversation is very interesting, and it does get into both the October 7th Hamas attack and Israel's bombing of Gaza since that time, which has claimed over 20,000 Palestinian lives. It's a really fascinating, complex conversation, and I hope you'll find it enlightening. So, with that being said, let's get right to it with Professor Daniel Boyeran. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very, very excited to have on. Uh, he is one of the you know, most, I would say, noted Israeli-American historians of religion. Uh, he has written a number of books, and the one we'll be focusing on today that I think is rather interesting, it's provocative, thought-provoking, is The No State Solution, a Jewish Manifesto. Daniel Boyerin, how are you doing?
1: Pretty well this morning. Yes. Um, let's put it this way: I'm feeling significantly better than the world is. What? Why is that? Just because uh, you know, on, on my tiny little personal life, things are going pretty well. But of course, I'm constantly appalled and frequently depressed and uh, about what's you know what's happening in the world. So right yeah
0: if you could maybe you could talk a little bit about your history because uh you started out in in years past as um a left wing or or socialist zionist and you eventually left that behind and i i wanted you to discuss what was your path towards anti-zionism
1: okay uh, if, uh, i didn't leave behind the socialism let's get that clear yes Okay. Um, in fact, to a certain extent, I would think um, that it was the contradictions between the ideals of socialism and Zionism that, that led me to, uh, as you say, abandon Zionism. For a long time, I sort of identified myself as a non-Zionist, and I've been a little bit more forthright in the last few years as an anti-Zionist. I actually spent a number of years as a member in a socialist Zionist youth movement. And what was interesting was, or what was compelling, was the extent to which the ideals of social justice, equality, Marxist theory uh, that that we were introduced to ended up for me providing the basis for the uh, the deep contradiction that I saw in both the theory and the practice uh Zionism. Uh, so uh, but I will say one other thing this movement also imbued in me a deep, deep commitment, identification, and passion for, for Jewish culture and Jewish history and Jewish texts and the Hebrew language and ultimately the Yiddish language as well. And uh, so the only part that didn't take with me or in me from the socialist Zionist movement was the Zionism.
0: I, I was going to ask, could you speak? I know there was a really specific turning point for you involving Yitzhak Rabin. Could you speak to that for listeners that are unfamiliar?
1: Yeah. At the time of the first uh, Intifada, you know, at the beginning of the Intifada, the uh, civil resistance of Palestinians in the occupied territory, Yitzhak Rabin, who was at that time, I could be getting this wrong, the Minister of Defense, I think, called for soldiers to break the arms and legs of Palestinian children who were caught throwing stones at soldiers or something of that. And it just began to think that a sociopolitical entity and movement that requires the violence against small children doesn't have a leg to stand on. That was the beginning of the crack. I didn't immediately wake up the next morning and say, you know, I'm anti-Zionist. But it really, really threw a serious monkey wrench into my uh, identification with zionism and with the state of israel and, and i would say that, that we see to what we've come from that moment of breaking the arms and legs of children as somehow uh, the enemy to the current uh, situation right it's that was a steady slope downhill
0: you were speaking a little bit there about the contradictions between Zionism and maybe uh, socialist values, or or even other values. You know, I, I know, I think there's tensions between Zionism and liberalism in some ways. Uh, could you speak to the contradictions between Zionism and um, other ideologies, and maybe even frictions with universalist values?
1: Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm not so much of a fan of universalism and certainly not of cosmopolitanism because they both seem to mean whatever is the dominant world culture uh, needs to swallow up and assimilate everything to them, right? Whether it's,
0: I, uh, I think in the book you even argue that there's a form of cosmopolitanism that feels very colonial or even neo-colonial
1: exactly exactly uh, to to say the least right so that that's not that's not the issue but the socialist humanist ideals that i was taught by my grandfather's by my parents and then by the youth movement that i was very very involved in and active in for a decade or more presupposed, not presupposed, but supposed the equal value of all human beings Um, and obviously the the search for economic justice throughout the whole world. And it became clearer and clearer to me that the the kind of uh, Jewish supremacy, Jewish exceptionalism, uh, in a sense that even or maybe especially no even um liberal zionism promulgated was in direct contradiction and tension with those socialist and egalitarian ideals and and somehow the the these the socialist and egalitarian ideals had had taken in me more deeply than than the idea of uh Jewish national statism but at the same time and this is not irrelevant it's it's almost necessary i got so much from this movement about jewish culture you know it was it was really where i learned got most of my uh, 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 initial jewish education so Oh, I learned about the holidays. I learned about Hasidism. I learned about the the uh, Nazi genocide. <laughs> you know, so that that was left with me, right? And in a sense, my search has been for a viable, vibrant, deep, and rich involvement in Jewish culture that cuts out the sovereignty aspect
0: if you could i want to read a line that really stood out to me uh, early on in your book you said in you, you write instead of jewish pride whatever that might mean but i'm not sh- i'm sure it's not good i propose jewish pleasure jewish joy i guess can we tackle that in two parts what do you mean by th- the potential problems of jewish pride and what do you mean by this alternative of of jewish pleasure and jewish joy pride always
1: suggests some kind of placing of one's group in some sense over other groups right i'm proud to be a jew what does it mean i'm proud to be a jew but uh, i'm proud that my uh that it was my parents who who produced me and not some uh you know not uh, uh john and jill Smith in a town in England wouldn't I mean, to be proud to be a Jew. I'm not proud to be a Jew. I'm happy to be a Jew because it has provided me with so much deep pleasure and joy and a lot of sorrows also in my life, you know, a lot of trouble also, you know, intellectual trouble as well. But even the intellectual trouble, as long as it's, involves thinking and producing and creating has also been a kind of a, a a source of joy. And whether it's the intensities and complications of studying a media, medieval commentary on a passage in the Talmud or eating Cholant on Shabbos, you know, the special mean and meat stew that we have for lunch on, on Shabbos, all of that is has just been so rich for me. I wouldn't want to have to trade it for being a cosmopolite, right? A, a, a citizen of the entire world, which essentially, I guess, would, would involve eating a lot of Big Macs and <laughs> things of that sort.
0: Is this where maybe you part ways a bit with, say, uh, Judith Butler in her book um Parting ways Jewishness and the critique of Zionism
1: yeah I think so uh you know I think so but we're uh we're very close in our politics you know uh, Judith is uh one of my I consider her one of my teachers in ethics and politics uh and for example the piece that she wrote in the London, review of books in the LRB that was published about two or three weeks ago on the current uh, situation just struck me as hitting exactly the right tone. But we're, we're somewhat different kinds of Jews, right? I can imagine Judith in many ways, but I can't imagine her, you know, with a gray beard and a yarmulke, you know, sp- spending hours every day studying the Talmud. So so there are different sensibilities. But for me, as I think I make clear in the book, saving some version, some powerful version of Jewishness, Judaism, whatever you want to call it, Yiddishkeit, Judaite, is very, very, very central for me, very central for me. And even so, I say in the book, if it can't be done ethically, then I would have to let go of it. If, if my choice was justice or judaite, then I have to choose justice. But I don't think, and I'm betting, and the book is a bet, that that's not our choice that there's sufficient power leading towards justice within the Jewish tradition. I'm not talking about something utopian or perfect or anything like that, but enough of that energy to get over the crisis in Jewish practice that we see today.
0: If you could, just getting down to the the core of... What the no state solution is about? Maybe we should define what you mean by no state solution, and your conception of a Jewish nation. uh, Because it's what you're proposing is very different than either a a racial concept of the Jewish people, or a, a a concept that says you know it that the Jewish people need a nation state like Israel. You want nationhood. Uh, but you're opposed to the sort of status concept of that could you speak to that a little bit more in depth
1: yeah and 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 you know and I catch a lot of flack from allies for in, insisting on nation for for you even using the word nation as if it's a you know a poisoned word somehow but I cannot think of any other word that is energizing in the way that nation is. You know, peoplehood just sounds like uh, 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 some uh, slogan of the Jewish Federation or something, right? We are all one. We are a people. Ethnicity means nothing at all in America, at least in American language. If I have to tick boxes under ethnicity that are uh, as incoherent as white, Hispanic, Pacific Islander, <laughs> as categories, ethnicity clearly is uh, a word that has been had the energy drained from it. Now, uh, my argument is that the poison pill in nationalism is the nation-state. That nationalism as a sense of uh, a sense of a powerful identification with other people who imagine a shared history who share language and language practices, customs, modes of dress, liturgical practices, even as well, not even, but as, as certainly as, as part of it, but not, not necessarily the central part, right? A, a significant part, but etc. That, that, provides a kind of what Durkheim would call effervescence, right? which I think might might be Durkheim's happiest uh, notion, the notion of effervescence being produced by uh, group identification. So my antidote, as it were, to the poison pill is opposition to the nation state, not to the nation. The nation has that energy. But there is no reason why as Jewish history has shown, and not only Jewish history, but other histories also. There's no reason why it needs to be that energy needs to be confined within a particular geographical geographical space. It can cross political borders, even widely separated areas. So diaspora as a model, as a model for human cultural collective existence, is my antidote, as it were, to the poison of status nationalism.
0: So, in other words, I, I mean, you, you're trying to break through. Maybe the, I think a lot of people, especially on the left, will have a knee-jerk rea- reaction when they hear, you know, the nation or nationalism. But you're you're not talking about. A nation in this um, necessarily ethnocentric sense, or you know, an ethnocratic sort of nation state. Could you elaborate?
1: Certainly not ethnocratic. Exactly. My my point is to locate the power of the state against states. I mean, uh, when, when somebody's got to make sure that that there are tracks for the trains and hospitals and. School buildings and you know uh, defense of the environment, etc. These are all state functions, at, at least uh, as far as I can see. But the, those state functions are not located in one nation, particularly of the nations that co-inhabit the geographical area of the state right so there's not a german state a polish state or a jewish state so the the the, Jew, the idea of the jewish state is essentially a 19th century product it's a product of the nationalist movements of the 18th 19th century essentially 20th century and it has worked out to be one of the more pernicious but not, not the most pernicious or the only pernicious version of that. I mean, if we look at the Balkans and uh, obviously uh, uh, the endless, endless, and it seems unending ethnic cleansing of one sort or another that uh, seems to be taking place, or uh, Anatolia, Turkey, which before Ataturk was a place, a state, of Muslims, Jews, Greek-speaking Christians, and with the onset of modern nationalism essentially ethnically cleansed its Jewish and Christian population. The more benign version was just sending them over to Greece. The less benign version, as in the case of the Armenians, involved something like a genocide. These events seem to me to be an inevitable product of self-determination as the uh, theoretical basis on which nation states are founded. Now I'm not there there's a lot that Lenin said and did that I reject. So I'm I'm you know I'm I'm not in any case necessarily a proponent of Leninism. But his opposition to self-determination was right on, I think, you know, was right on. That was not going to be the way that was not going be the way to a just world and a just and just societies.
0: In terms of. There, there's two interesting sections of your book that I really want to hone in on right now. Uh, bad faith, why the Jews aren't a religion and bad faith. Blood. Why the Jews aren't a race, and uh, it's interesting. You you've in throughout the book you mentioned some authors that I've read, uh, like the historian uh, Shlomo Sand, uh, the author yeah. of The Invention of the Jewish People, and I I think what you're getting at in analyzing these different authors is that they get caught in this trap of treating the Jewish people as either they either have to be a race or a religion. Could you? Uh, explain why you think that's sort of a trap that people are falling into.
1: Oh, you know, I, I I spent about twenty years composing those two chapters, not literally, but thinking about. So I I can't do justice to even what I wrote there, but what I can say is that it's probably not the case that Jews are a race at least in any sense in which we um, use the term race. Maybe 150 years ago, they used the term race differently. But certainly the way we use the term race in our world today, and especially in the United States, there are black Jews and there are white Jews. So Jews are not a race in, in, in that biological sense. And the Jews are manifestly not a religion, since probably half the Jews in the world don't give a fig for observance, and still many of those people identify very strongly with different, both with Jewishness itself and more richly with Jewish language, Jewish practices, not necessarily defining them as rel- religious, etc. So so neither of those, neither of those definitions or accounts, Works even on an empirical or a phenomenological level, they're just contradicted by, by, by the real world, as it were, right? And I'm not much for abstractions. I'm, I prefer d- descriptions that are more grounded and empirical, right? So I, I look for, I, I, I look for something that seems to to fit better and nation and nation as family including a metaphorically extended family right seem to me to be at at present more adequate descriptions of the phenomena of Jewish existence and identification and creativity and vigor and I'm perfectly happy. To be the negative term in a dialectic
0: if you could could you speak about i i guess the influence of certain uh black studies thinkers like fanon on the work you've done especially with this book the no state solution
1: i, I don't, wouldn't call it influence but they have answers to certain questions that You know, that uh, had been burning in my belly since my bar mitzvah. And as I discovered Fanon, Du Bois, and some of the other writers, for, for one thing, and this was a bit of a surprise to me, although it shouldn't have been, but they themselves write so much about Jews and Jewish identity and putting it into conversation with Questions like the question of negritude and and the tension phenomenon, in particular, the tension between powerful group identification on one hand and and a, a, a universe, uh, you know, some sort of a universal a universalism as, as well. So that was one, and the other was I. I just felt that they're really, really struggling with, and to a certain extent, providing me with help with guidance. In thinking through my dilemmas here, and these dem- dilemmas are obviously not exclusive to Jews. I have a graduate student who's writing his dissertation um, on Native Hawaiian identity and the the tensions that he feels between us this sort of passionate Hawaiian revival movement that on the one hand he's he's actually very um, dedicated to but the way that that turns into a kind of chauvinism of its own and the reason that we're working together is because we're thinking about similar Dilemmas in in different in different contexts. So, I found the, the Black radical tradition, in particular, extraordinarily enlivening and helpful in thinking through some of the dilemmas of the book.
0: Was there any particular insights you you got from the Black radical tradition that really helped you with your own thinking, or
1: it was the conversation around negritude in particular? you know, and uh, the, the dilemmas of negritude, and especially Fanon's ambivalent response to negritude, right? But the most mo- single moving figure for me was Amy Césaire, you know, in his, his explicit call for a universalism that, is motivated by the coexistence of differences and not some sort of a uh, assimilation or...
0: I I was going to say, that's the type of, if there was, I wish there was a new cosmopolitanism that was about accepting difference and having coexistence between difference. But so often it seems like the kind of cosmopolitan we get is turning us into a almost like a blob-like morass, you know, uh, where really everyone gets assimilated and they really lose a lot of their cultural practice in the process. And I I think there's something terrifying about that. There's something that gets lost.
1: Yeah, no, I I, I agree. I agree. And uh, I I think there's, uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm being careful of not necessarily naming my opponents, you know, the people that I imagine or construct as my intellectual opponents here. But there certainly are some thinkers of cosmopolitanism that that really seem to believe that the heights, you know, the absolute heights of ethical and uh, civilized practice were developed, you know, in uh, the colleges of Oxford and Cambridge. And that universalism means spreading those those ideals all over the, the world to all the benighted folk, so to speak.
0: If you could, there's a figure that I know was deeply influential on you uh, that I don't know if my listeners are familiar with. So I, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about him and his contributions to uh, Jewish intellectual thought and dialogue, uh, the figure of... Um, Simone Dubnov uh, and the Jewish autonomists. could you speak to what his ideas were and how they relate yes. to your ideas?
1: Yeah I, 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 not in depth but in in brief. He articulates, I think first and most clearly, the idea of a Jewish nation that is not identified with a particular state right? but is, is a nation, a diasporic nation. He was writing, obviously, under different geopolitical conditions. He wrote long before the Nazi genocide, initially. So there was an enormous number of Yiddish-speaking Jews in the kind of contiguous but broken-up area throughout Central and Eastern Europe. But nonetheless... I find him and his idea of a diasporic nationalism, of a non-state nationalism, foundational. Foundational, particularly when it is articulated with the with the Bundist ideals. A, a friend of mine, uh, Shaul Magid, Magid, You might know. Yeah, Shaul has been on the show before. <laughs> oh, okay. So, Shaul, Shaul Magid. Has characterized me, Daniel Boyarin, as a neo-Haredi neo-Bundist, and I think that there's justice in that. You know, it it uh, it's clever, which Shaul is always clever, but I think there's some justice in that because the two poles of diasporic existence that I call for what constitutes the dia- diaspora is, on the one hand, a cultural and Affective commitment to where I am, right? Which the Bundes call doikai, right? Which means hereness, right? But also, and this is what makes the diaspora a equally powerful commitment to a collective that is scattered or elsewhere or even in just one other place. So that double cultural and affective location is articulated by the neo-Bundism on the one hand, right, which demands of me that I be committed to fighting injustice in the city where I live, doikite, and the identification and, and care and energy and effervescence that comes from this shared identification with with Jews in in other places, identification, which doesn't necessarily mean um, well, which doesn't mean pride always, as you know, to say the least. I mean, I, I argue, or I've suggested, I don't know if I argue it, but I've suggested that Jewish shame is as much a a sign of, of identification as, and, and in some ways, a more relevant one the jewish pride if if i pick up the newspaper and i read about some uh, uh, character who, who has nursing homes all over new jersey new york and connecticut where uh, old people are being you know mistreated etc i hope that mr bad guy is not going to have a jewish name right <laughs> why because of my powerful Identification of myself as a Jew and with uh, and with Jews, so that that's that co-articulation, yeah, uh, that that constitutes diaspora for me in my theory. But looks for its models in two very different areas and brings them together. You know, the the Bund and the, the Haredi, You know, that sense of uh, of of identification via the past.
0: If you could, you're very interested in the idea of, um, I guess, uh, Jewish continuation, but not in the sense necessarily of, um, you know, being worried about birth rates. Um, right. Could, could you speak more to what your vision of, of Jewish continuation is?
1: Yes. The vitality of Jewish languages is a significant part of it. Jews have almost everywhere created texts and literature in jewish languages i want to see yiddish i want to see judezmo i want to see a kind of judeo hebrew widespread and as creative centers of 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 thinking of Poetry, um, so that's one part of it. A little bit more parochially, I think the Talmud is a kind of lifeblood of Jewish vitality. And you don't have to. You don't have to necessarily. It's like you you remember the ads for Jewish for for Liby's Jewish Rye. You don't have to be Jewish to enjoy Levy's Jewish Rye. You certainly don't have to be orthodox to enjoy studying the talmud right and and to, to find in it all sorts of wonderful and terrible things right but but things that are both the wonderful and the terrible are a kind of excitement and an incitement to and we we can we can do these things i think we'll be able to do these things more when the terrible, terrible distraction of a Jewish supremacist state is replaced by a state in which uh, Jews and other ethnic groups fully share power, have autonomous uh, uh, autonomy vis-a-vis cultural lives and, and and uh, and share and shared geographical space without a particular space being identified as as this is the this is the Jewish space and and this is uh, somebody else's uh, space.
0: It sounds like you're calling for the existence of autonomous Jewish communities within a state, but not a, a Jewish state right. in and of
1: itself. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly the, uh, you know, um, a thinker like, and I'm not going to go into any detail on this, but a thinker like Marie Bookchin appeals to me very much, other theorists, and also some political arrangements of shared, uh, what shall I call it, shared or, or governance with, uh, by different National groups. Then nothing is perfect. None of them are perfect. Belgium is not perfect. Switzerland is not perfect, right? But the 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 possibility of multinational states is is there. It's not. It's not. it, It only becomes utopian if one expects them to be perfection and to you know solve all the problems.
0: Just a few more questions here, um, if you have the time. Do you feel as if, I mean, I don't want to um, misinterpret you at all. Uh, do right. you feel as if the, at least, political Zionism as a project has been, in, in a certain way, and I hope this isn't, you know, too over the top, too over the top of award, a word, but a catastrophe for the Jewish people.
1: First of all, I don't distinguish being political and any other kind of Zionism as okay. as you know from the book, I argue explicitly for them uh, for so-called political Zionism to be very cultural and so-called cultural Zionism to be very political. But so, uh, but setting that aside, I do. You know, I'm I, I'm not going to say the sorts of things that I might say late at night at home with only my wife and kids to hear me but i do believe that that zionism has been a catastrophe and is an ongoing catastrophe not only for to its victims for its victims which is obvious and our concern has to be especially right now first for them but also for the um and it's ripping ripping the moral heart out of the of the jewish people
0: so the victims of course being the palestinians could you elaborate on what you mean by the ripping out the moral heart
1: well when i see people who are otherwise i mean and is not this is not a a, a occasional i see people who are committed to ethical lives and to progress and equality and peace suddenly abandoning all that in favor of uh, of univocal You know, we stand with Israel. We support Israel. What are you What are you talking about? You supporting? You're standing with Israel, killing five thousand Palestinian children. What do you mean? You stand with Israel, and so that that uh, distorted political commitment to what is, after all, a state, just a state, is now maybe it may be shifting. You know, it may be shifting. Little by little, there are certainly plenty of American Jews at any rate who are coming out and in in their speech or in demonstrations or even more militant actions against this.
0: You mean uh, especially like younger Jews, members of things like Jewish Voice for Peace, et cetera?
1: Yeah. We're not all young, though. (laughs) Right. Absolutely.
0: In terms of what one of the things I always hear is that if there isn't a state like Israel, how will there be a safe haven for Jewish people? There needs to be a safe haven because of the history of you know the Holocaust and even before that pogroms against uh, the Jewish people. But I, I think that neglects that I'm not sure Israel is the safest place to be uh, for yeah. Jewish people.
1: I mean, I'm saying. Uh... The silliest idea, well, one of the sillier ideas is that the way to protect the Jews is to put them all in one place. The Talmud got that much better. They say, why did God divide the Jews up between the Roman and the Sasanian Empire? Right. So if there were attacks on Jews in in the Roman Empire, the Jews of the Persian Empire would be safe. And if there were attacks on Jews in the Persian Empire, the Jews of the Roman Empire would be safe. So you know. Look, there's nothing to laugh about. What happened on October seventh is on many levels absolutely unconscionable. It it went far beyond resistance and um into something that I I don't understand and 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 find absolutely abhorrent. But it certainly did demonstrate that the myth of 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 Jewish safety and Jewish invincibility under the what do they call it the Iron Dome is is about as convincing as the idea that God protects the Jewish people. So it's, um, I think that that is one of the significant, and and the, the rhetoric of so much of Israeli speech, particularly of we will always live by the sword. We have to live by the sword. Uh,
0: yeah, I believe uh, Netanyahu said that. Yeah. Uh, even Not not even just recently, but before, you know, when it came to policy towards things like the West Bank. And I mean, even now, the, the references he's made to uh, the biblical story of Amalek, I mean, these are, right. I, I think, very dangerous ways of speaking and, and use of language.
1: To say the least. Right. Uh, uh, to say the least. Yeah. The best thing that could be said about Netanyahu oh. is he's smarter than Trump.
0: If you could, uh, one of the other interesting aspects of your book is uh, talking about the early Zionists and, you know, how in some ways you could argue they were interested in the idea of a stateless nation. I know some people are going to, you know, uh, try to take issue with that, but maybe you could describe, I mean, in brief, you know, your assessment of figures like Theodore Herzl. Well,
2: look,
1: they clearly envisioned. Uh, a stateless nation the idea that that the only solution was jewish sovereignty was made official policy of the zionist movement in the 1940s at, at the biltmore conference up till then it was still a matter of controversy within the zionist movement as to whether what what was being sought was a a, a jewish state or not so that's now what people are going to say, and they already say, is, well, Herzl, Pinsker were living during the time of the Austro-Hungarian and the Ottoman Empires, so they couldn't imagine a sovereign Jewish state. And But if they had lived 50 years later, or whatever, 60 years later, or 100 years later, they would have agreed also that the only solution is Jewish sovereignty. That that strikes me as an invalid argument. What they say, and it was the work of of the Israeli historian uh, Dunsky uh, that uh, convinced me that, uh, you know, he was (laughs) one of the first historians of Zionism who read Russian. (laughs) <laughs> and read the, read what Pinska wrote in Russian and took seriously even what what Hansel imagines as the the state being uh, not a state but an autonomous region
0: what What for you are the biggest misunderstandings people have had about your book, The New no State Solution a Jewish Manifesto?
1: Uh, You know, the book hasn't been out that long, and I'm sure there are people out there who are absolutely furious, but um, they haven't mostly been in contact with me, and this is not an invitation, (laughs) necessarily. My sense of the reception that I've gotten, now this is no more than, than this tiny little bit of experience that I've had, is that many Progressive Jews are breathing a sigh of relief at someone saying to them, you can be a good, quote unquote, good Jew without being without uh, that forcing you into the moral contradictions of supporting the state of Israel.
0: I was going to say, because there is that, I, I think too often there's this idea of the, the good Jew and the bad Jew, and in a way you're offering a way out of that.
1: Exactly. Explicitly, because there's that, uh, you know, that judge in Pennsylvania on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court that I cite who talks about bad Jews and good Jews, right? You know,
0: wrapping up here in regards to the events that have transpired, I think there's a lot of just hopelessness right now from a lot of people I know, both Jewish and Palestinian. Oddly enough, I think both Jewish American and Palestinian American people that I'm friends with feel a sense of isolation, even loneliness right now. They feel like they aren't being heard. What do you want to say to them? Uh, Because I I think you do try to offer uh, some level of hope. So what are your feelings about what has transpired over the past month? And what's the way forward? Is there a way forward? And is there reason for hope?
1: I'll just say on on the current event aspect of it that we must demand fight for a ceasefire and it is a shameful moment in american history when a allegedly avowedly progressive president is supporting morally and materially, the an ongoing massacre um, of other people. Uh, I'm not sure about the technical definitions of genocide, not genocide, so I'm not going to use genocide, but certainly a massacre is taking place. I saw a t-shirt the other day that said, the future is mutual aid. Not sure exactly what What it meant in 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 the context of the person wearing it but i got the impression that it it means that if people don't start helping each other instead if this idea that you know you got to look out for number one that there isn't any future for human beings not just for jews not just for palestinians but for human beings
0: if i could just add to that i i you know i'm in florida right now and we just had a florida lawmaker, uh, Representative um, Michelle Salzman, respond to being asked how many, you know, uh, one of the other Congress people said, how many dead Palestinians is it going to take before we say ceasefire? And Michelle Salzman very callously said all of them. Uh, And, you know, for all the talk there's been of, you know, censuring and I mean, the censure of Rashida Tlaib I don't see much talk about the figures that have said things like, you know, just get rid of all of the Palestinians in Gaza. It doesn't matter. And and I do think that Palestinians have a point when they say, what
1: about us? Yeah, well, no, of course. Of course. I mean, the censure of Rashid Talib is is unconscionable. Unconscionable. And uh, 21 of the 22 Jewish Congress people who voted for it Democrats all receive massive donations from AIPAC.
0: And and that last question I asked, you, what is your advice to activists that uh, are feeling hopeless at this time? What, I mean, I, I think you're sort of uh, an elder statesman of speaking truth to power in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of people look up to you. So what would you say to them in this trying time?
1: Get out and demonstrate. For one thing, it feels good. You're together with other people. It, it creates community of itself. You know, it's like what people have been arguing uh, about strikes, that strikes are not just about forcing companies to give better wages or better working conditions, etc. They're also about creating community. So I think that being in communities, just as an example, Jewish Voice for Peace, And being out there and sharing the experiences is an antidote to despair as much as anything else.
0: I want to thank you again, Daniel Boyeran, for coming on Parallax Views. In closing, what do you hope my listeners have gotten out of this conversation? And what do you hope they get out of reading uh, The No State Solution?
1: Um, A realization that just that there are other possibilities, that there are other ways of imagining human lives and 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 thriving, and uh, that that's one of the things, or the main thing that the humanities is good for. <laughs> so,
0: I was just going to add to that if I could and get your thought on this. Uh, I mentioned, you know, how people could be hopeful right now. I think. I always tell people, as long as there is life, there is hope.
1: Well, exactly. Exactly. Anyway. Thank, thank you, you again. Be well.
0: Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Professor Daniel Boyerin. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, I cannot emphasize enough that I need your help to keep this show going. I only have one advertiser, the mighty Mike Swanson of Wall Street Window, but otherwise this show is entirely listener supported. Although I will say, if you're an advertiser out there, please. <laughs> I could use the extra income. But as I said, other than that one advertiser, really this show is listener supported. So, patreon.com/parallax Use one more time, that's patreon.com/parallax Views, kick me some cash. I could really use it. And I want to wish you all a happy new year. With that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with to Views. The way out is not simply
2: to say, Don't do it. Just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that... Uh,